Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Die Living Podcast, brought to you as always by Softleet. This week, we have Zach Carbo joining us in the studio. Zach was uh, on the podcast previously in one of the first episodes that probably got deleted when Brian went through and culled all of the poor audio recordings. The culling. That's right. So we're super happy to have Zach back with us. Zach is a soft lead athlete, former Second Ranger Battalion Ranger, if that's the right way to say that. And uh, you can correct me if uh, that's correct. All right. Um, <clears throat> also, base jumper, speed wing rider. What else am I missing? All around awesome guy. Yeah, all all around rad. Fun dude. Rad fun dude. There you go. Your general lack of enthusiasm is not <laughs> lost on me there. Yeah. I feel like the look on your face right now is, man, this is starting off I way, think way worse than I thought it was going to. I think we should open the floor up by saying that while you've mentioned all of the rad things that he does, he is also afraid of heights. Yeah. We'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, For sure. Yeah. yeah. My so, grandpa just called him coward. <laughs> <laughs> But Zach's out here visiting us from the Pacific Northwest on the way over across the pond with Brian, right? Yeah, so, correct. Go ahead, heading over to uh, the Swiss Alps. Yeah. So, yeah, tell me more about this trip that you guys are taking. It was a harebrained idea that I had uh, when we were at uh, the Tahoe meetup <clears throat> and, uh, at Heavenly and uh, said, hey, I'm going to be going to the Alps. We should send some other guys to the Alps. And we should have a lot of fun in the Alps. So I typically go um, to Switzerland. I've been going there for a little over 10 years now, um, but it's always been in the summer. Mm-hmm. So um, I really enjoy skiing. I'm originally from New Orleans. So a lot of people, when they see me skiing, like, oh, dude, you live in Washington. You've been, you know, you rad, you know, have fun skiing. I've only been skiing for really about six, seven years, but I just have a lot of fun doing it. Um, got into speed flying, speed riding and everything uh, several years back. And been going to Switzerland for, like I said, over, a little over a decade and um, to go base jumping uh, with, uh, with friends. And now it's just an opportunity to go back in the winter and the spring. And essentially, we're bringing all the toys. We're bringing skis, speed wings, base rigs, wingsuits, tracking suits, everything, because there you can do all that stuff. So whatever, whatever the, um, the conditions allow, we're going to do it. We're gonna it's, have like, it's like the Wild West of killing yourself. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it they, sounded like when you were talking about <laughs> the other day, man. You're like, yeah, you just kind of take the gondola up to the top of the mountain and make choose your own adventure from there. Exactly, choose your own adventure. It's kind of been uh, the theme for me for for quite a while now. But um, it's a it's one of the things I struggle with with being in the community we live in here in, the, in North America and the United States, which is we have to um, kind of put bubble wrap on everything. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you go to other cultures around the world. Everything's really sharp. They recognize that. So, you know, whether it's in Chamonix or Switzerland or whatever, like, oh, three people just died on the mountain. They just kind of look at it as like, 
Yeah. Yeah. They went up the mountain. Yeah. Because that's what mountains do. They kill people, you know, especially if you're, you know, you're not uh, kind of watching your sick, so to speak. Um, but any, for the most part, anything goes. And yeah. it's, I think it's a great opportunity for people to test their limits, to, to really see what the world is all about. You know, mm-hmm. um, it'll either reward you greatly or it'll eat you alive. And, um, I think that's why we continue to make this long trip across the pond and spend all this money to go to this place when really we have a lot of great things here in America, but we're so litigious and we tell people, no, you can't do that because you might hurt yourself. Right. Like, yeah, I know. Well, it, it messes with people's ability to properly risk assess. You know, exactly. Like people, everything's so, like you say, bubble wrapped, like people have kind of lost, especially Americans have lost the ability to like see how dangerous things truly are for what they are because you wouldn't be allowed to do that if it was truly dangerous. Well, there's you know, a sure, there's a that, Sherpa for that. <laughs> well, it's funny too. Like there's certain things that like in the U S that are still pretty dangerous that people are allowed to do like downhill snow skiing, right. you know, off beast downhill skiing. There's no laws against that. You know, certain places you can't go, but like, I mean, there's pretty legit terrain that's like on resort in the United States. Um, and the same guy that like goes down a double black diamond looks at another dude that's doing something like, shooting a firearm in his backyard. Oh my God, isn't that dangerous? Right, yeah. You're like, yeah, but it's controlled and I know what I'm doing and I have training. Wasn't going down Corbett's, you know, Couillard, in, in, Couillard yeah. Couillard in, in Jackson, Jackson Hole. Hole. Like, was that 20 foot drop off that you did dangerous? Well, yeah, but I was trained and knew what I was doing. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I think one of the misconceptions, um, and we're kind of talking about it before the podcast is, um, there is a lot more risk, management, like in the military, you know, before you go to a range or before you do anything, you have to do a risk management worksheet. So we're doing this, like it's already set. We're doing this airborne operation. We're doing this, you know, heavy drop or something like that. And that's a high risk, you know, the possibility of fatality or loss of life, limb and injury, or, you know, massive uh, monetary loss is great. So what are the controls that we're going to implement in order to mitigate and reduce that risk to an acceptable and manageable level? Mm-hmm. To where we can we can pr- justify the the danger of this thing because mm-hmm. it's happening. We're doing it. <laughs> like the commander has said, we're doing it. And at that time, you know, whether it's us standing on a cliff or whatever, we are the commander. We are doing this. It's the homework. It's everything. And I'll I'll keep back going back and forth between this civilian activity and the military, which is when you see some sick, you know, we're, you guys are talking about like proximity flying, by the way, we don't call it proxy flying anymore. So just let you know, <laughs> but proximity wingsuit jumping, mm-hmm. base jumping. <laughs> you guys are idiots. Yeah. You use the wrong terminology. You're such a noob. <laughs> well, I fly by proxy. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, now there's this YouTube or GoPro generation where we just see things we're like, I'm going to do that. And people like me and you know, the guys at Squirrel and everything, they get phone calls and emails like, dude, I just want to do that. I want to do it like next week. Like you're not seeing the decades of experience, the money, the time, all the things that go into essentially um, the process of achieving a goal, right? Yeah. Like you don't just go from zero to hero. So go ahead. Oh, I was going to say um, one of the things that really amazed me, I'm thinking back as you're talking about this uh, – to when I went out with uh, Nick and Bill and Chris mm-hmm. Peaches, as you yeah. affectionately <laughs> call him, uh, to the, the, you know, the tower jump in yep. Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur, 
And one of the things that I always really uh, found most respectful about Chris and, and his philosophy was the discipline that he always had about when not to jump. Yep. Um, and in Kuala Lumpur, arguably that setup makes it the easiest, right? Because it's like, hey, man, you just take an elevator to yeah. the top of the tower. <laughs> to and a building, 1,000-foot building. Yeah, if you don't like it, like you take the elevator back down. Um, there, but I could totally see that in, – and in that scenario, I was very uh, surprised by how many people continue to jump in some of the really hot afternoons where – Hey man, the last five people that just jumped off this platform all caught thermals right. as they were landing. Right. Like one dude's in a tree, and the other guy's like wrist is broken. But you're still ready to like, hey man, like I'm about to go. Um, I could see that pressure. Hey, I just spent six hours climbing this mountain, right. and that clouding your judgment of, well, you know, even though conditions don't feel right, like, like I really want to do it. So. Maybe this is uh, you know an easy answer for you, but like, what is the insight that you can give us as to how you keep that discipline, how you keep that mental clarity? Because obviously, I mean, I'm guessing what you're doing here is based on you. Obviously, you enjoy it. You know, there's got to be some type of excitement from like the thrill of of doing it. How do you balance that with being able to say no at the last second? And I'm speaking for myself because. I think it would be a little far-reaching to say that this is it. Mm -hmm. But for myself, it, there's self-preservation, right? So there's there's a big thing going on, particularly in base jumping now, which is there's a term being thrown around, and I actually I actually like it, which is sustainable. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning of wingsuit base jumping, you can you know the idea was to get as far away from the rock as possible, or whatever the object is you were jumping from. Now, you know, as it progressed, the technology progressed, we're like, oh, man, like, dude, we got to go, you know, fly along this big granite wall in Norway. And then it progressed and progressed and progressed. And next thing you know, you got guys that are like literally going through, uh, I don't know how big the cave was that Alexander uh, Poli went through, but this hole in a rock, which is once you get to a certain point, there's a point of no return. Mm -hmm. And that's it. You're committed fully. That type of activity is not maybe not a one and done, but it is a non-sustainable activity. Right. Does your butthole tighten up a little bit when you do that kind of thing? Like it's like point of return. So I w we were just having a conversation about my mental process, like oh, adrenaline junkie, and I hate that term. Um, I think most people that do these activities, they don't like that because I'll speak for myself. It's more of a Zen moment. Like so before I. I jump or before I drop in, there's all these things that are ruminating in my head. And it's like, it's not just the angel and the, the devil that are on my shoulder. It's like an entire arena of angels and devils that are on my shoulder. And like, dude, watch out for that. Do this, do this, do this. And it's kind of like a, a thing that I've been thinking about um, when I did my first ski base right before I saw you guys in Tahoe. Um, Which was a super rad. Like, it's like, Zach, you just sent the video to us. And I was like, oh, that looks boring. It's like a picture of you in a helmet. And it's like a GoPro thing. I was like, that's stuff stupid. And Brian goes, did you look at the videos that Zach sent us? I was like, nah. And then I was like, I like hit play. I was like, oh, 
holy shit, he's just going to ski off that cliff. What's he doing? Yeah. And, What's he doing? And there's like, oh God, he's dead. It's like this like super, <laughs> yeah. and then I'm like, oh, he has a parachute, thank God. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the mental process of that, this is my first one. Um, the con- those conditions were kind of variable. I was with a guy who is actually one of the pioneers, one of the first guys to do a ski base. And it's at one of the first places that anybody had done a ski base. And if for anybody's listening, they don't know, a ski base is essentially you're skiing, but you have a parachute on and you're about to, you're going to ski off of a cliff that is not sustainable to land without without the advent of a parachute. Um, and then at whatever point you deploy your parachute and you land safely. That's the idea, at least. It's death-defyingly scary. You have these normally, and I was, you know, kind of touching back on the risk management thing, normally on a base jump or, or any of these types of things, you want to reduce whatever risk possible. So one of the risks is a snag hazard. So your parachute's coming out, or you go to deploy your parachute and it's got this pilot chute, which is a big air drag, and it's got this bridle on it. And that bridle, if you get an arm or a foot or whatever hooked on it, well, that stops the sequence of events that are needed to open up the parachute safely and correctly. So on a normal base jump, you're mitigating all those risks, right? You know that the jump is difficult or it's dangerous, so you're doing certain things. You're you know wearing things. You're taking off a watch so it doesn't get snagged on or whatever. Well, now we have just made it so you have to ski on this variable terrain, not a groomed run. So we make the in run, uh, smooth it out. There's rocks, there's trees, there's variable snow, all these other things. So you you mitigate that. But then we're putting these big, huge planks on our feet, which just magnify the snag hazard possibility. And if you don't know anything about skis, they typically have these little, little latches on them that in case your ski does fall off, it doesn't go missing down a mountain. It's like a little break. That's a snag hazard. So we're adding all of these things. We're adding, willingly adding risk Mm -hmm. to a risky move. And then we say, oh, so I just added extra things. I should be mitigating those things and reducing them. Now how do I reduce those things? Um, And so it's scary. So this entire hike, we're boot packing up um, in South Lake Tahoe, Southwest Lake Tahoe, boot packing up and these things, this audience, this arena that's continuously growing. It's like you gave free tickets to Miley Cyrus and people are just like flocking to it, right? These voices are in my head are like, dude, what are you doing? Don't do this, do this, all, all those things. And if you think about it, don't think about a red elephant. You just thought about a red elephant. You just picture it probably in your head. Right. Ch- chances are at least. Duh. Right? <laughs> so, and sorry for anybody's listening that you just thought of a red elephant. They don't exist. So, I'm, it's an hour, hour and a half hike. I have this audience that is just yelling at me, dude, you're going to die, all these other things. I want you to think about how difficult it is. And, and you can think about it. I almost didn't put an application for my master's program because of fear of rejection, because of fear of failing. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially a mindfulness thing that I've been working on, which is, and I have all this time to think. At, I'm looking at this cliff the whole time. I'm looking at the death, right, the potential. And then I get up there and I build this in run. And I'm just thinking like, dude, what do you do? Are you really going to do this? Like there's a little bit of wind that's happening. Like, oh man, all these other things. And there's a tree on the left-hand side right before the exit. It's like, dude, don't hit that tree. <laughs> you know, um, there's rocks. You know, snow is a little bit variable. There's a rock here and there's, there's a bush here. Don't get your ski tip caught on that bush. Well, the whole time you're doing those things, all you're doing is you're looking at the rock that you don't want to hit and catch an edge. You're looking at a tree you don't want to hit a ski tip on, um, you know, and flip over like 30 feet before you go off and you tumble off this thing. You're looking at the massive tree you don't want to hit. 
and then my friend Slambo, as we affectionately call him, um, he says, hey, I'm going to go out to the exit and I'm going to stand there just to, to give you a wind indicator, let you know if we're getting gusts because the wind was starting to pick up. Mm-hmm. And now I'm thinking, oh, there's another obstacle right there. Don't hit your friend Slambo. Don't hit your friend. <laughs> he's, he's, I mean, I've got pictures of it. He's two feet from the edge right off the end run, right off the exit. Not wearing a parachute. Oh, he is wearing a parachute, but right. if, I, if I hit him, <laughs> we're, we're clobbered. We're, we're, we're a ball of mess. Right. So I'm like, man, not only are you about to potentially kill yourself, you're about to potentially kill your friend. Don't kill your friend. So I'm thinking about all the don'ts. Is this like mountain biking where like when you're looking at something and thinking about not doing exactly it, you're right. guaranteed to do it? And, that, and, and, <laughs> and that's the thing. So it's this thing that I've been, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a blue square skier. And one of the things I've been working on is trying to get better at skiing through the trees, tighter, tighter and tighter, tighter trees. Don't look at the tree. Look at your line. Look between the, the trees. So I'm literally. Did you just say that you're a blue square skier? Yeah, I'm a blue square skier. You're such an asshole. Why? <laughs> uh, most unfair statement made on this podcast in history. No, like. I believe that's an underplay of your current skills. <laughs> no, <it's like laughs> the, guys, the guys at ON3P Skis uh, that help support me, they're like, yeah, dude, he's probably the best blue square skier around. Like, yeah. 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 So. So the idea is, is that you have all this Best fear. Carver on the mountain. <laughs> you have all these fears, all these possible things that could happen. Don't focus on them. Be aware of them, but don't focus on them because if that, if that's where your sight is, you're like, dude, don't hit that tree. You're gonna hit that <laughs> you're gonna fucking hit the tree. tree. And honestly, Christian goes down there. Slambo goes down there on the exit. I'm like, oh, dude, like you are going to kill your friend. But what's interesting is, is that, and like I said, we we're just talking about it before this podcast is it's the process. It's this Zen thing that I get from all these activities, which is, dude, what are you doing up here? You're going to kill yourself. All these other things, all the, all these things, bad things could happen. You know what? In life, there's a lot of bad things that can happen, but focus on what you want to happen. You know, like we've seen it, like the, the flow state and, you know, um, um, what is it called? Uh, imagery, you know, do that. So there's this just point that I get to, and I've been working through it over the past 14 years, 13 years, or whatever it is, uh, base jumping and doing all these other activities, and even in the military. Like, we go through this planning process. You're looking at your objective. This is our, um, our blocking position, whatever you're envisioning it. You're looking at all this imagery. This is what you're going to do. This is what it's going to look like. Do this. And then you flex if things go south. But then there comes this point where, okay, I'm ready. And I basically close the curtain on the audience, uh, for, metaphorically. It's gone. Shut up. You're, no, I don't even have to tell them, like, hey, stop doing that. It's just poof, the doors close. That's it. I point my ski tips downhill. I take my step forward, whatever the, whatever the, the environment is. And it all goes away. And I can tell you on that ski base and even the one I just recently did in Utah with friends, it all went away. And the only thing I'm looking at is skiing between the trees. It's looking at my run, at that exit, and you perform. It's been a process, man. Like, I don't know how long it took me to, to get to that point or to even understand it. Maybe I've been doing it the whole time. Um, but the more I look back retroactively and introspectively and all these things I've been doing it really all of my life. I think that's what made me mildly successful in the range regiment. And I think that's what is keeping me alive 
at least, maybe not successful at these activities and in life, you know? So it's a process. And I think people need to, I was just talking with Marshall Miller about, you know, he's starting this new kind of this job venture. And he's like, oh man, like there's all these things and I'm not sure. I told him straight up, I was like, dude, enjoy that process. Enjoy being a student, enjoy learning and learn from yourself, learn from others. And I think people, they're FOMO, you know? So, yeah. And they just want to like do. Like, so no, it's very dude. mindful. Yeah. You know, being in the moment. Right. Do you so, enjoy the mindfulness more than the actual jump? I actually think the mindfulness. Is that what you're, is that, is, that's a question, you know, people, like we talked about ad- adrenaline junkies before, and, you know, a lot of people push against that. And I've, <clears throat> having talked with a lot of those people, I feel the biggest reason is, is that that moment that everything fading away and pure concentration on a certain task, that is what they're seeking and that is what keeps them coming back. It's just that activities that require that level of concentration and discipline, which are high risk potential death situations are are what give them that. So they're attracted to those things, not necessarily because of any adrenaline or uh, the, the, the necessarily the excitement of the of the thing, although that's a fantastic payoff. But only those activities are what put them in that state of mind. And You're so talking about like a, a flow state, you exactly know, being that in the zen zone. state. Yep, right. It's like that's the thing that forces them is sitting on the edge of that cliff with a you know about to pull a drogue, you know, right. out of the back of a backpack or or anything like that. Um, so my question is: Is that like that for you, or is the bigger payoff the actual activity? Yeah. So. I mean, science says there's an obviously a uh, physiological response. Like there is going to be a dopamine release, like period. Like your people are going to dilate. Like there's all those things. Does it get less and less though? That's like the problem for most of us, right? Is that like eventually the dopamine fix isn't actually, it doesn't feel the same? For me, so I still feel it. Like, uh, there, you know, my Instagram story when I was done with that ski base and everything, like I did the little selfie, like, yeah, man, yeah. ski base, Utah style. And I even said, like, I'm not shaking because I'm cold. I'm shaking because that was awesome. That was exciting. I still feel it. I'm, I think if you're not mindful, like you said, Aaron, I think you're just going to think, like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I'm realizing, like, that is the response. But I'm most fired up right now for me the process that I just had to go through. I fully recognize. So before the Utah ski base we just recently did, when you looked at, and uh, Nick took a really good drone um, time lapse, there, if you look at that video, there was no snow where we skied. We actually had to take little bags and shovels and transplant that snow, I mean, only about 30 feet away, but we had to transplant it there to build it. There was massive rocks that were on that, like we were looking at like, this is the way we need to come in because of the way the rock was and all this other stuff like down below in the cliff. This is, this is the line. We have to do this. There, this thing won't happen otherwise. There was a bush on the exit, like a foot and a half from the very edge. There was a bush on the in run. And I mean, they were dead. They were all crumbly and everything. So it was easy to get rid of But When you look at it, you're like, that is death. Like, and so I, I even told, I told Mike Steen, I told Marshall, I told Nick, I was like, nah, man, like I will help make this magic happen. But because of my vision at that point, I couldn't fully see like, yeah, we can get rid of all these. We could, we can mitigate this risk mm-hmm. by, by removing these hazards. 
but then once we, once it started to happen, my anxiety went down. I was able to see like, oh, well, uh, may, yeah, maybe I, <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling this, but it was still fearful. Like I'm still about to hurl myself off this 500 foot cliff on skis. Um, but I made it happen. Mm-hmm. So it, the audience, the, the arena of naysayers was still there. I was able to slowly quiet them out and eventually shut them down. But the release that I felt, you know, to answer your question, Doug, was full on. Yeah. I don't think that it has gone away or it has been subsided. I can't speak for other people. But I'm also wondering, you know, that we're having this conversation. I'm wondering if some of that feeling is still that physiological response, but some of that feeling, if it is dwindling as far as the dopamine effect, is it being subsidized with the moment? Yeah. And they're new, am, right? Every, yes. Every base jump for Everything you, is new. It's not like you're jumping the same bridge a hundred times. But even when I am. Every single one. I, I am so, I mean, this is going to sound really weird. I don't know who's listening, but it is so rewarding. I literally get down from those jumps, like go to Prine or go to some of the, the cliffs that we have in, in Washington State, all legal. Um, <laughs> they are. And you, you get down, you get down from it. I insist. And I, I do, I look back and like, I look around and there's this river flowing and these, I mean, being in the Washington Cascades, is like being in the Swiss Alps. I mean, this is gnarly yep. granite craggy rocks. And I'm so appreciative of that moment. I'm alive. Um, and yeah, it's rewarding. So I'm, I'm one, now that you're asking, I'll probably well, I mean, it's ponder worth, this. It's worth, it's weird because as someone who doesn't base jump or do proximity wingsuiting or any. Things I'm petrified of doing, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, like it's interesting. Like, I mean, I'm on a mountain team, and like, I don't like climbing. I don't like heights either. Um, the more I do it, the more I am okay with it. But it's just something that, like, eh, I, I don't, I don't appreciate those things. But I think that the only thing I have as a comparison would be gunfights, mm-hmm. where like, man, the first one was fucking awesome. Like, it's over, and I'm like, Whoa, yes, like so excited. And then everyone thereafter, even big ones, like bigger than my first one. Right aren't as they're just not as exciting it's like oh that was a thing that happened right so that's the only comparison i have right and it's a good one but i mean maybe it's totally different because the way you describe the process for this is not i mean it's not how i but see maybe it. think about at, at you know at the end of your or not the end of it but as your career progressed you i, I fully know you become whether it's cynical or you become numb to those types of interactions you know well, it's, it's, it's like a nuisance, right? Because you spend a significant amount of time planning for contingencies right. and trying to mitigate risks within that, within a mission profile. So like when a gunfight happens, it's not like when I was an E5 or an E4. I'm like, fuck yes. Like, dude, right, shit's yeah. popped off. Let's do this. I'm immediately like, fuck, this is some shit I didn't want to go down. Now, like, what are we doing? Is everybody okay? Where, where are other elements? So I guess the question would be then, because I have the option of at the end of a base jump, like, oh, you yeah. know, or speed fly around, like, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen, yeah. right? And you get down. So whether you're doing it on, on a unit level or a team level, yeah. you do an AR. Yeah, like, AR. Hey, right. So I do that. Like, what are the sequence events? And, and I didn't, we won't talk about it now. We can talk about it later. But the, the, when I broke my arm yeah. a few months ago, I literally did my own AAR and trace that back to is it was the beginning, the chain, the very small incremental mistakes that were made to cause that happening started eight years ago. And I was able to look at that 
just built habits that led you to doing something risky? It, it was, it was, uh, I'll, I'll make a long story short. I bought a parachute from a friend of mine, um, a reserve parachute, um, cause I was just trying to finish a rig. So I was yep. being a little hasty and it totally works. Everything's fine. Totally airworthy, but bought it for 60 bucks. Hells yeah. <laughs> it's, it is older, outdated technology. Would you it, trust your life to this? But 60 bucks? Hell yeah. Right. And the, and the, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is that it did, it did work. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so I, did, I was short on money, so I bought it, packed it, never used it at all until I broke my arm. Um, and, but never replaced it over a years and years and years. Um, and then I had a malfunction, wasn't that big of a deal. I was like, uh, I, I kept losing altitude because I was like, oh, I think I got this. No. Okay. So I made a decision. No, I'm going to go ahead and get rid of it. So I went ahead and kept flying the parachute to where I could give that that parachute because when you cut it away it goes with the wind so you got to go find it or else you're out like twenty five hundred three thousand dollars for your main parachute so i kept flying it so i can give it a good spot so when it finally did land i can go find it easily so i ate up altitude then when i cut it away I'm like oh this is pretty fun i'm just gonna go ahead and enjoy this for a couple of seconds and then i would deploy my reserve so i ate up more altitude reserve open fine flew great no problem but now i'm like oh I think I can even make the main landing area. I don't even have to land out, but I have to fly straight there and then make one slight little turn. Well, what I didn't do was make sure that it turns left, turns right properly, and that you do a, what they call a practice flare, which is how you land. You pull both toggles down and see, like, hey, how does this parachute flare? Because it's going to flare differently from your main. That particular parachute, when you load it heavily, once you get your toggles, the little things that you steer with, past your shoulders typically it will violently collapse, stall and collapse. So how, how violently pretty <laughs> like breaking an arm violently when you hit the ground. So I flew straight in and come in like, okay, well it's a reserve. So they don't flare that well. So I'm going to give it everything I've got. I'm going to flare completely. I imagine flying a parachute. So you're just suspended from something and you're flying about 20 miles an hour inherent forward speed. And then all of a sudden you snag your parachute on a light pole. Your body is going to continue moving forward at about 20 miles an hour. That parachute violently stops right then and there. Well, luckily I was only about six, seven feet off the ground when I flared fully. And essentially my parachute hit a light pole. It completely thrust me straight forward and then slammed me down, thankfully, completely flat on my back. So I wasn't like in a seated L position. My arms go out to my side because it's super violent, super fast. My arms flat, flatly hit the ground, and thankfully I wasn't like bracing backwards for impact. And that flat impact, essentially just slamming your hand on something, broke my arm. Was it like a clean break, or was it just like super, a super clean? Thank, it was like right in the middle of of the forearm. Um, wasn't near the wrist or anything, so I wasn't you know dealing with that. But um, so I, and I'm looking at was it, it like radial ulnar, or was it just one? just radial? Yeah, okay, just radius. Yeah, so. <laughs> Being how I am, I looked down at it. I knew immediately I broke my arm. So I look at it and I put it back in place, start getting out of my gear and everything. And in the process of getting out of my gear, well, the, the, the ulna was there to help splint it. So it was easy to put back in. As I'm getting out of my gear, the bone comes back out. So I pop it back in and let people help me because dare I let somebody help me. And then I was going to drive myself to the airport or sorry, to the, uh, to the hospital. I'm glad I didn't because I was... The shock actually hit me pretty good, but got a little woozy. Had let a friend help me, got to, uh, to the hospital. And 
I didn't allow it to heal properly or, or effectively. So it's been like a four, five month heal. But I literally, <clears throat> so afterwards, I was able to trace all of the small incremental steps that literally went back eight years. And those are the things I think we should be aware of. You know, it's not like if you do that, you're going to die. Well, there are things you could do to mitigate that risk. And you need to think of all of the chain reaction events. And you need to understand that it's typically not one major oversight or that'll never happen that you do. It's these small chain events that are seemingly 99% invisible or what is, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. You don't. Well, I think that's a going back to what you said about like you getting calls and squirrel wingsuits getting calls about, hey, man, I want to do that next week. I think when it comes to anything that involves an enormous amount of fear, like overcoming fear, any activity, people assume that overcoming your fear is 95% of doing the activity, you know, because that kind of a bungee jumping way. If only I can like have the metal to throw myself off this thing, everything's going to be okay. And I think they forget about when you're talking about things like base jumping or free solo rock climbing or any of that sort of stuff, the amount of sheer preparation that goes into doing those things in a way that's controllable, you know, in a way that's manageable um, is immense. But Control, no one even th- Controllable in your mind. Like, I feel like there's so many things. Like, I love listening to, like, Zach and these guys talk about it. And, like, you do, there is the illusion of control and everything because you've gone through, you've mitigated all the risks. But, like, there's so many things going on that are outside well, your there, control. There are variables. You know, it's it's like we we always talk about with the, you train for a gunfight so you don't get hit by a bullet that says stupid down the side <laughs> on it. If there's a bullet out there that has your name on it, there's nothing you can do. No amount of training is ever going to do anything about that. But you just don't want to get the hits, hit with the ones that are addressed to stupid. Inshallah. And and I feel that's the same way for base jumping and, and all these sorts of things. You can control down to the nth degree the variability that you can control. But there are there are hands of God. It's like unpleasant, unpleasant like, to take that to a logical conclusion. It's something that I've always wondered, and I've never asked Zach this, so... Zach, I will ask you now and you can tell me to go fuck myself if you would desire. But like there are there are people in the extreme dot 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 community like fill it in. Right. So like we just watched uh, Free Solo. You got Alex Honnold that you know, free soloed El Capitan. Super cool. Right. Um, but I mean, all I'm thinking is like that guy is um, he's very OCD. He's like on a spectrum somewhere. Like he's like gone. He's able to go through that whole climb. Like in his mind, he knew every little inch of it, and he was just going like going through a process. And he drilled it to death. But I mean, it was still a super dangerous thing, right? And like when he was done, he was like, "I'm like, how are you? How do you feel?" He's like, oh, "I'm delighted." You know, like very, like very, like flatline. Like he's like he's excited, but like you know, what's next? Like I don't know what's next, but he's clearly thinking about what's next. There are a lot of dudes in those sports. They're at the top of their game. They're famous dudes, and they're all dead, right? Like the guys that everybody looked to as the lead dude. Talk about Dean it in, in the movie. Yeah. yeah. What? What's up? Like, what is the dividing line, right? Like every person who's doing these sports feels like that's not going to be them. Even like dudes that are faster and looser, guys who are super controlled. That's not going to be me, right? But in the end, like we're all going to die. So like, it's sure. not like it's a morbid, weird thing for me to say. Like, hey, when do you think you're going to die doing this? But right. like, you guys are pushing the boundaries really hard. Like when you're talking about that guy keyholing the cave, 
with a wingsuit, like yeah. a proximity suit. A proximity wingsuit. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is a dividing line? Is there one or are you guys just really on a continuum where you're like you're just waiting to push a boundary far enough that it's too far? Well, the guy who f- flew that hole, he's yep. dead. Right on. Teen Potter. He's dead. Uh, I was listening to a podcast recently, and they, for the most part, they talked about these wingsuit guys. Everybody who's been innovative, who's done these first, most of them are all dead. I'm not in it to die, for yeah. sure. And I don't think anybody is, you know. Um, but you are in it to see what your limits are. And we all know that at a certain point, well, your limit is... And I, like... I think that you're, you're maybe, even though it looks like one thing, it's slightly different things. Like, Zach isn't necessarily doing things that are the first of anybody. And I think that's where, like, when you don't know the risk because the risks have not yet been assessed because no one's do it, doing it, that really puts you on the edge of the envelope as far as killing yourself. And there are certain people that, like Alex Honnold, for example, that guy he's going to die at some point. Like he does things specifically because no one's done them before and no one can assess the risk. Whereas Zach tends to do things that are a little bit more established as like thousands of times this has occurred without incident. Yeah. But, but also, and you're absolutely right. Like I think on the, on the, the, um, the level of risk taking and the level of, um, first, so to speak, I'm way down. Like, what did Dean? What did Dean died? What was he doing when he died? He was wingsuiting. He was. But I mean, was he doing something new, or was he just it, wingsuiting? No, it, so um, that particular one, I won't speak specifically about it. But that yeah, particular yeah. one, he was jumping with one of his good friends, Graham. And and here's the thing: it's like these small incremental things. They were jumping Yosemite, and it's a federal crime. Yeah. So. Does this go back to what we were taught when we were privates, which is you can break any one law you choose, but you cannot break two at a time. When you break two at a time, you're going to get caught for both. So, and, and that's the thing. Like I said, I won't speak very specifically because I don't want to be um, yeah, yeah. speared by the community. But essentially what was happening is they were jumping a, a particular jump and they were going to fly a particular line off that jump. That about 10, 11 seconds in, that's it. You are committed because they're going to fly this little notch. Yeah. So prior to that, it's the point of no return, right? We know about it in the military. Like, it's a you know, yep. point of no return. So Still going to send it. <laughs> yeah, so, so there, and, they were, and they were flying a two-way. So, you, so this particular jump has a factor. Once you get past here, you're committed. That's it. If you're not flying it well, do whatever you can, but it's probably not going to look good for you. Then they added another factor. So you see what, you see what I'm saying? Uh, like yeah, yeah. We're adding things to this already dangerous thing. So we're going to do a two-way. Both unbelievably capable individuals. Can you just describe yeah. what a two-way is? Uh, so two people are going to, yeah, thanks, Aaron. Two people, uh, you know, you're doing a solo base jump, you're just going off by yourself and you're you're jumping by yourself or you're flying it by yourself, whatever. You add a second person to it and you're going to fly together. Mm-hmm. That is a two-way. I so assume that gives you less flexibility. It does. You have a limit on one side. Exactly. Especially when you're going through this notch. Mm-hmm. And there's also a thing, um, so... Most people know what drafting is. Um, so, you know, a car gets behind another car and they're using that essentially that dead, that um, low, uh, low pressure air, the dead space essentially behind the other car to help yeah. to help them. So these guys are stealing each other's lift essentially? Well, in wingsuiting, you don't want to do that. Yeah. Because 
that yeah, you, it has you, a negative effect it, on the front person too, right? Um, so when no, 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 no. The, the front the person's person. good. They don't know. <laughs> okay. Unless unless the 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 rear person gets into that burble is what we call it, and then they lose their lift and then they collide with the other person. Right. Got it. Okay. But it's invisible. It's kind of like technically with drafting a a car. Like you you can't see it. You know, unless mm-hmm. there's smoke. Um, but you, you know feel yourself you know about where it's at. But as you're constantly changing your flight trajectory and vector along this line, um, that burble, that low-density air behind it, that rotor is also changing. But you can't see it, especially when you're flying at 120 miles an hour in a wingsuit along terrain. So your eyes are constantly scoping off everything and also looking at your buddy and also trying to say, oh, where's his dead air? Where do I want to stay out of? So you have all those factors. Um, And then it's a national park. So what we do, or what some people may do, if they were to choose to do that activity, is they jump it in low light conditions. So it's first thing in the morning, or maybe first thing in the evening. Because if you're trying to get away from something, use the cover of darkness. That's what we always did, right? So those those conditions are also not ideal. So we've taken this inherently dangerous activity, just as an individual, just jumping off a cliff. Then we add this large surface area of a wingsuit. But hey, I mastered that. Cool. Now we're going to set, add a second person to it. Ooh, but he's also mastered it. So I think we're cool. Now we're going to jump this thing where 11 seconds in. That's it. Eh, but you know what? I've jumped this thing before. I've, 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 you know, we have GPS data that we use now. I've got that. Okay, cool. And now we're going to jump it in low light because we don't want to have an adverse effect of getting arrested. Uh, I've done that before too. I think we're cool. <laughs> So we get lull potentially, even though those those guys were absolutely pros. But it it it, it what we get lured it induces into, a sense of complacency to, too, it, right? Where so like wh- we're making we there's so many things that are out of our control that we think are good because we trust our skill ability. We start to forget about some of the basic things just because like that's just our mindset. Well, now. it's like Zach talked about when he broke his arm. When you deploy a reserve, you should check your left toggle, your right toggle, and your flare at altitude before right. you make a landing. And he was like. You know what? I have thousands I of jumps. I know how this works. I can right. make it there. I know how this works. I'm going to be fine. Right. Yeah. So whether it's complacency, getting lulled into a false sense of security, whether it's um, the, oh, no, like, we got this, right? So you get, like, the, if I'm standing here and I'm about to ski this line, I'm like, oh, like, I'm not too sure. And Brian's like, dude, you totally got this. Like, we, you know, blah, 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 blah. Okay, cool. Right? So you get convinced, lulled into it, whatever. And it's those small little things that add up. And unfortunately, some of these things, whether it's a firefight or whatever, like in your planning process, you're like, oh, no, no, like we're not going to worry about that potential disco setup that's over here or this whatever. We're just going to forget about that. Or Camo. Yeah, or Camo, right? Like we're we're not going to worry about like, yeah, like they haven't had a, I don't know, heavy machine gun or whatever on all these objectives that we've hit. So we're good. Well, should you still maybe plan for that? Because I don't know, a 51 millimeter or 51 caliber uh, dishka, that's that's a bad thing. So are you taking in the, the environmental considerations? Are you taking in all these different considerations into your risk management? Um, because it might just be, I don't get approved for my master's program and I have to go somewhere else or I have to work harder. Or it might be, oh man, like I didn't see that coming. I just lost whatever money. Or it could be, oh, you know, got lulled into it or whatever, and I just lost a limb 
or lost my life. And right. then now what are the second and third order effects for the people that are remaining? How so, do you manage that though? I mean, like obviously like the guys you were talking about, they're pros, as you mm -hmm. said. Um, it's so, you know, confirmation bias is so hard to overcome in those regards. You know, how is, is there a process you go through to try to remain objective? I'll answer that um, completely and I'll also answer it with essentially a, an anecdotal piece of evidence. So recently I was in the Wasatch Mountains and I was, you know, skiing via helicopter um, with some friends, arguably some of the best athletes in the world. Like Matt Gallon is unbelievable. He skis almost every day. I have a huge bro crush on that dude. Thanks to you. Yeah. I mean, and, and, the and these people, the nicest, most quiet, unbelievable genuine people that was why this weekend was like with me will live off live on in infamy like the feeling i got not just from the skiing that we did and all these other things it's just like being around those people and i, I can't i can't say enough about surrounding yourself with amazing people it feels like you're with family right absolutely and like e maybe even, even, even if more, i just met them maybe more the family that right. you didn't actually have right with the real family yeah yeah so here I am with these people and totally bro crushing on them and just like, and feeding off their energy. Like, Oh man, like that was rad. How do you not like your initial reaction is walking into his hangar with four helicopters yeah. and like heated floors. And you're like, well, this is super cool. Who's is this? And he's like, mine. Yeah, well, I mean, and I met him as he showed up in his <laughs> Robbie 66 yep. and like gets out in ski boots. <laughs> like he's flying his helicopter in ski boots. And like, is that like, Hey man, what's going on? You know, I'm like, oh, this is <laughs> so anyway, so, but so, and we, we'd been skiing and the Abbey danger is off the charts. So we're skiing lower angle stuff and, you know, we're having to pick and choose our aspects and everything. And once again, that's all the homework that goes into before we point our ski tips downhill. We, we looked at all that stuff and we do have some local knowledge with, you know, Danny and Matt, we're definitely leaning on their local knowledge. They live in the mountains. They ski and ultra run in the mountains every day. They know all that, all those spaces. But then we had this idea. It's like, all right. There's this one coolie, this coolyar called the Gur, and I think it's actually spelled G-R-R. -R. And I think the story behind it is it's called the Gur because it's like when you, before you drop in, you're like, what am I doing, <laughs> right? Um, and then right off its flank is um, the crow's feet, and it's called the crow's feet because it's like three coolies that all funnel into this one coolie, this one coolyar, and then go down. A lot of people don't know what a coolyar is. Yeah, so coolie, it's just imagine like a near vertical gully. Yeah. Um, and for skiing, they're difficult because they're, they're very narrow. So your turns have to be very sharp and they're typically very, very steep. And then when you have multiple couloirs that funnel into one place, which they typically do, um, the avi, it's a no-fall zone because if you fall, you're just going to tumble all the way down. Avalanche. Avalanche, right? yeah. Sorry. Um, so the, the, it, they, we call them no-fall zones because if you fall, you're just going to like plinko your way down these rocks. And then this very steep terrain and you're going to probably have a little time to think about it before you're knocked out and your friends, if you live, your friends will be like, Hey dude, that was cool. <laughs> so we have the Gur, which is this um, unbelievably gorgeous cool yard. And right off to its flank, it's the crow's feet. And we're looking at it and I'm like, Oh dude, this is all time. And the idea was we're going to send a couple guys skiing, mainly Danny and Matt, because they're super rad and they know that area. And then, the rest of us, we're going to throw on wingsuits and we're going to fly incredibly steep through this cool yard, one of them, while they're skiing it. And just like be able to, they, we'd look down at them and they'd look up at us and we're like, yeah, dude, killing it. A lot of fun. So as we're flying over it and 
it was, it's really gnarly. We're trying to land a helicopter up there. It's outside of wilderness. And we couldn't find a place that would clear blades and everything would be safe. So, how, hey, I, I, as a digression, how the fuck do they tell where they can clear bra- blades? Because that dude, we, like, when we, they did that rescue mission, he, like, just flew the helicopter in the side of the mountain. And so I'm like, there's, like, a foot between the blades and the mountain. There's a reason why Nick Sacco, his helicopter is all matte jet black, is because he's basically a ninja. <laughs> <laughs> he is. I can't say enough about the guy. What and what? I, what elevation were you guys at at this? Um, on the Gur or that rescue? Like with the with the helicopters? Like you guys are doing these drop ins at what eleven, twelve thousand feet? Ten, t- uh, between nine and eleven thousand feet. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's yeah. very little lift up there. Oh too. yeah, yeah. They're I mean, super thin. And if you know anything about flying helicopters, like any one little catch can just burp. Yeah. Send you over. Yeah. So how? So he's looking. He is asking us. We're all on incoms. He is looking at one area, like whether it's a landing or a blade clearance, and we are doors open, leaning out, like, hey, tail looks good. Don't, you can't swing tail left, can't do all. So we're, we're, we are helping him, but it's very minimal. I mean, he's got his hand on the collective and cyclic and, and the pedals. So the idea was, we're like, okay, we can't land because we're not going to be able to clear a rotor. But Danny and Matt's like, I think I can jump out from about 10, 15 feet up. And it's a knife edge, like ridge, yeah. but it's a lot of snow. And I think if I jump out and straddle like, like a cat, Stop, I th- man. I, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> I think I can do this. So I want you to keep in mind though. So this is his idea. Like, I think if I do this, I, I can't say where it would have gone, but because of the other voices on that intercom system, like, I don't know, Matt, I don't know, Danny. Um, are you sure? Like, <laughs> because it's it's knife edge. We can't land the helicopter. There might be a tree. There's no can, rescue attempt. There's, I mean, you're going to, in every sense of the word, you're going to plinko down that thing. So if you don't nail that ejection, that's it. You're, the chances are very nil. So you have the, hey, I think, I think this is a good idea. And you have, I want you to imagine... What if everybody on that bird would be like, yeah, dude, sweet. Bro, cool. you are literally, this is why oil field roustabouts don't do high angle <laughs> yeah, skiing. Because right? every one of my buddies would be, be like, hey, y'all watch this. fuck yeah, yeah hold do my that shit, man. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, and I'm not saying we say Danny or Matt because they probably would have stuck it because they're unbelievable. But that's the process. And so eventually it wound up they're like, okay, I think, I think we can go over here and land. I think we can still make this happen. At Cooler Heads Prevailed, we still did a borderline high-angle helicopter landing yeah. at, at 12,000 feet. And I'm in trying a place to remember. Where, where Special Operations Aviation Regiment would have forbidden us from doing a tailgate landing. Right. <laughs> so we nixed that knife edge landing but we're like okay i think we can still make it over here so here we are again we're like oh but i think i think i think i think right and eventually basically the landing the next landing would have gone i think it would have gone but as we're rotating around i'm kind of looking down and there's definitely some fear right but i eventually got to the point where i'm looking down i'm like man i'm totally on board with helping like i'm full on board with making the magic happen Mm -hmm. and helping facilitate amazingness and fun but I got to the point where I'm like, you know, something is telling me right now, I'm not too sure about me skiing this line. So I just spoke up on the income. Like, hey, I'm not fully feeling it. And the last thing I want is to be, to end up on the receiving end of a rescue. 
Mm-hmm. And if I'm not feeling it, I don't want this chain of events to potentially happen. If nothing else, the self-doubt. Because if I'm feeling that in the bird, you know, because sometimes you're looking down, you're like, oh, dude, we got this. Look, oh, man, look, you get drawn into it, right? Literally, you're getting drawn into, literally drawn into this coolie. Something just said, yeah, I don't know if you should do this. So I just spoke up with him. I'm like, hey, I just want to let you guys know, fully on board, whatever you guys need, I'll help make it happen, but I'm probably not going to ski this, whether it's the crow's feet or the gur. And I'm not saying that it necessarily had anything to do with it, but the next voice on the income was Mike Steen. He's like one of the best paragliders, wingsuit flyers, you name it in the world. He's a co-founder of Squirrel Wingsuits. And the next voice was him like, yeah, me too. And I'm not pointing conclusions, but that I think, whether it was me speaking up or Mike, that started the chain of events of, yeah, let's, because we all want to do the, do it together too. Mm-hmm. I would have totally been just as stoked to sit there, sit there and watch Matt and um, Danny ski this. I'd have been fired up. But then the chain but of events. But they wanted to do it with you. And I wanted to do it with them. Yeah, yeah. And, they well, were, they were and like, no one wanted to be, there's always that first person that has to be the guy that says like, I think this is a little bit outside of my performance envelope. Right, right. No one wants to be that and, guy. And that was where I was. It wasn't just the feeling. Is Luckily, I was, I was saying <laughs> this is probably because of the feeling I'm having, I'm going to, whether I'm going to blame it on, but I don't think this is within my performance envelope or at least my comfort zone. So I spoke up, Mike st- spoke up. We're like, you know what? Yeah, are we trying to, are we trying to push something? You know, I'm kind of interjecting a little bit. Who are we? Who are we trying to impress? Right. So you know, what we yeah, did. There's four of us in a in a high performance helicopter. Like yeah. we should just fly this thing right. to the bar. And that was the other thing <laughs> too. We're like, strip club <laughs> guys. I'm not trying to crash Sacco's, you know, Savage Sack's bird. So, so we went up. Uh, we do you aired. Guys, do you guys give it? Do you give yourselves cool names or do you just like <laughs> <laughs> Savage Sacks? Yeah, there was it was Savage oh. Sack, B Dog, and the- well, well, it's funny too, like when you- and the dude. <laughs> yeah. Regardless of the who, who gives, it was self proclaimed or it's given. Um, that weekend, we essentially dubbed uh, the the events um, Sack Country Adventures. Because nice. it's like, it's, you know, Nick Sacco and Savage Sack. And so it's just like that play on words like, oh, man, like we're living Sack Country Adventures. Like sign up now. Seats are limited. <laughs> um, so what wound up happening is we, we took this other nice, super cool, wide open landing zone right off of the crow's feet. And we skied awesome Wasatch powder through tight trees and got super fired up on it. And then we got the phone call to do, to do the rescue, like two, I think two runs into there. Um and do they just have your? Do they just have uh, what? What's his name? Six sack. Sa- uh, Savage, <laughs> Savage sack. sack yeah. Savage sack. Savage sack. Just on speed dial. It was well. It was a friend of um, um, Danny and Matt's. Like, hey, dude, I know you're skiing in the area because they're always. This is skiing like the, the A team, dude. They're like, yeah, literally. If you have a problem, that actually, <laughs> and, that and actually you can came find up. Them. <laughs> that actually came. The A team came up, and I almost started to like, do I get to be BA Baracus? You know, no. like, man, you're the face man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it. I know it. Yeah. Um, and I think it was, whether you believe in divine intervention or whatever, I think it was all for the better. It was like, man, those guys could totally do that. And we probably would have pulled it off. But was it worth the additional risk that we were throwing into it? Stories like that are way better told in the rearview mirror. Like where it's Absolutely. like, I had to do this thing right. and I was too dumb to say, maybe we should stop. Right. Every good deployment story I have is me being too dumb to know that what I was doing was wrong, <laughs> and I did it anyway. Yeah. And 
as someone who has more experience now, I would never do those things right. ever again. We're like, well, well, that's not an option. Speaking of that, you mentioned earlier that you know, your time and regiment has affected your mindset. Right. You know, how so? How do you think that's happened? So in the, in the early times, you know, when you're tap spec four and, you know, maybe even E5, you don't know you're being introduced to, but you don't know that much about the risk management, you know, process. You just know, like, dude, being an E5 team leader is the greatest job on the face of the planet because basically you get the talk of the walk, baby. Yeah. You're like, you, you're going to go here. You're going to do this. You're going to bring your team and you're just going to annihilate everything if the ROE dictates. Um, because you have a, a decent amount of responsibility, but not too much. And it's almost like the ignorance is bliss, right? I just know I'm going to get pointed in this direction. I'm going to, they're going to take the leash off me and they're going to say, go. And everything I do from thereafter is going to be awesome because that's what they want me to do as an E5 team leader. Then you start to grow in rank responsibility um, and accountability. And you're introduced to, well, I know you saw it from this angle and you've been briefing your part of the order for all this time as a E3 or tap spec four. But now we're going to show you the why. We're going to start letting you peek behind this curtain and we're going to start showing you a part of the process because we're involving you in it. You are now expected to do this. So I would say when I went to recce as a new E5 or newer E5, um, for anybody that doesn't know, recce, reconnaissance and surveillance, you're working in this small team. And so all of the assets and all of the things that you had to do um, or you you had at your disposal and you had to do with 40 guys in a platoon, you now have all of that responsibility and you have to do all of that work with only six or seven guys. So your level of responsibility and accountability is through the roof. It's, it's almost not even conceivable. And you're, you having to grow up now and be all of these things is, is, is tremendous. So your learning curve is super steep. Your responsibility is super steep. You have six, seven guys, you know, as, as a recce team leader, you have six, seven guys that are below you and it's like everything is riding on you. You have to, it's, it goes on and on. I think that was what helped me because I was able, I, once again, I was willing and allowing myself to look back retrospectively like, oh, so this is what I was doing in ranger school, you know, because, you know, like just do this, do this, do this, and you'll get your go. Anybody can pass ranger school. It's just, you can literally take out your ranger handbook and just follow it and read off of it. Yeah. It's like, just, just don't quit. They can't even kick you out. Exactly. You can just keep coming back time right. after time. So, and that's the thing, like ranger school's for monkeys. Anybody can do it as long as you don't quit and you just follow a couple rules. But leading people and dotting all your I's and crossing your T's is exhausting. And if you're willing to, when you make a mistake, if you're willing to say, yep, that was on me. Because they tell you in range school, like, you know, responsibility. Anything you do or fail, anything your platoon or your team does or fails to do is your responsibility. That's what you're kind of ingrained in for leadership. The buck stops here. Right. But do you really believe it? If Until you believe it, until you realize, like, man, even though there were other factors that were involved, and they may have been actually bigger they may have led, had more consequence on the outcome than you just failing to do this and that. If you're not willing to accept that instead of being like, well, but like so-and-so had an AD, whatever it is, right? 
until you're able to say, yes, all of those things happen, but this is also where I went wrong, until you're able to admit that, then nobody below you or no, nobody above you is going to, to move forward because you all have to take on your own accountability and responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I can sit there when I broke my arm and say, yeah, like, well, it was this, like they were rushing me to make the next load. So, uh, you know, that's why I, I, you know, the packing error that I made. Oh, so that's why that happened. I can sit there and do that all day long. Mm-hmm. I can point that finger elsewhere all day long. But until I'm willing to say, yes, but I could have done this and this and this and this. And ultimately, and Doug, I, I agree with you, there is an illusion of control. But until I'm willing to accept that responsibility and say, yeah, but you know what? I could have done that. And I think that w- it keeps you in the game, bro. That's the thing, right? right. Like the, I get what you're saying and that we accept – we. One of the most important things for soft guys in is becoming an adult and learning is right. transitioning from the spec four mafia mindset of like, hey, man, I'm here to work into a person who believes that the product of your work is 100 percent your responsibility. It keeps you coming back despite failures. Right. I mean, we, talking about maturity, self-confidence, yeah, humility. Yes, but it's also a lie. Humility. It, it is a fucking lie to tell yourself, like, you know, when you're like, hey, man, you know, you got to accept responsibility. This is all my fault. Like, we are not gods, right? We're not, we are not in control of everything that's going around around us. But we have, you have to lie to yourself and convince yourself that it was in, within your power so that you make adjustments for the next painful experience well, that you're we, about to go we into. We take responsibility for the things that I, I and I fully know what you're talking about, and I, I hope everybody's kind of following this. We we cannot necessarily control the world around us, but we can control how we react yeah, to yeah. the world around us. But I mean, like when you're in a patrol base, right? Like, I mean, I, hypothetically, if you were a four man recce team <laughs> dropped into Afghanistan and you all fell asleep, and then you're compromised, and there's a firefight, and many people are killed, and then right. you know, one guy gets away, and then uh, specialist. Um, Carbo has to come and find you. <laughs> right. Like that, hypothetically, a notional story told, <laughs> told through, through a certain lens. Yeah. Did they have radios? <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, right? Like, uh, there are a lot of things that from an armchair, you can look back at that and be like, wow, dude, that whole thing would have been stopped if only they had followed what they would have learned at Ranger School, which is someone is always up for security. Right. 50%. Yeah. But like, and, and there's a reason there's 50% because we know that if we leave one guy up, the one guy's falling asleep, exactly man. Right, yeah. And like as a ranger, I think that you've been set up for a really, in, in a good way for what you do now because you are anal retentive about the way things should be and they're this way for a reason and it's hilarious like i always found like at sut a small unit tactics and the special forces qualification course it's like a it's i'm gonna say it's a mini ranger school don't jump across the table but ranger school's dumb it, it was always funny to me that the things that we were taught there were very like we were taught by former regiment guys that's like the guys that gravitate towards teaching sut and they'd say things like, you know, I mean, hilarious to me that we still wake up for stand to because that's when the French and Indians. French and Indians, yep. Yeah, like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. But also, they're still 100% right. Yeah. That, like, the pre-dawn hours are the best time to, you know, conduct patrol-based activities, pull security, do things, like, get ready. And even though it's rote and you think it's stupid, it is setting you up for success. Every zombie movie that ever was the people who are not bitten would never get bitten if they just put security out and they didn't get involved in emotional like 
interpersonal conflicts well, so that like little creepy crawlers can come up and bite them. So basically, in my mind, I think that all of the basic things that you learned as a private coming up in the Ranger Regiment and, and the experiences that came shortly thereafter, like how long was it between when you left a training environment to when you found yourself in Afghanistan on Red Wings? I graduated Ranger School, I think, March of 05, and Red Wings happened, I believe, uh, end of June, early July. That was like a week or two of 05. So it was, I don't know, a couple months. I think most people listening will probably be familiar with Red Wings. But so the story, yeah. For um, those that might not be. Yeah, like Operation Red Wings. It went, so before I joined the military, we knew some guys in internet forums, Brian and I did. <laughs> and we saw like the um, operational summary of what happened to Red Wings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it was, it, for us, that was like the pinnacle of what going to Afghanistan and being in an operation like you're like holy shit this is what I'm getting myself into and we didn't know at the time that it would become a movie like you know it would be right. Lone Sur- a yeah. book and then right. a movie Lone Survivor um, but essentially what happened is an, a Navy SEAL team I mean people who are listening have probably seen this movie but a Navy SEAL team a, a um, reconnaissance team who is <clears throat> really it's probably not fair to say that they're a reconnaissance team. A small group of Navy SEALs who were a SEAL delivery vehicle team who volunteered for a reconnaissance mission that a bunch of other people had rejected uh, because it, the risk factor was too high, found themselves in Afghanistan without a lot of contingency planning and a lot of uh, rescue resources options. They were compromised. Um, the book Lone Survivor happened, and Zach was part of that. I mean, the mission... The, that mission, because of the rescue operation, extended for a really long time, right? right? Yeah. I mean, and I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest with you. We had uh, somewhat of a conversation before, and I've had numerous subsequent conversations with other guys that were in my platoon, um, to include my platoon leader. And I've told them flat out, like, and there's so much about that week, week and a, a week and a half that I don't remember still to this day. But I mean, on, I mean, you still like on the books as, as the history books record, you guys did a lateral movement into a denied area right. um, on foot with all of your supporting equipment. Right. And, how, I mean, how long was that movement? I think we started out, uh, and forgive me, the specifics might be a little off, but around a 1,000-foot um, MSL, and okay. we ended up in excess of 10,000-foot MSL um, in one single movement. Um, and I'll, I'll back up just a bit. So I was based out of... Um, Jalalabad at the time and we got word hey there was some seals they were compromised a bird all these other things firefight there's a a tick a troops in contact and things aren't looking good is the nutshell of it they knew you knew a bird was down at that point too right yeah and there was um there were some other assets that were there with us we were I think we got the word I don't know it was it was in the afternoon evening time we got the word, and I would say conservatively, we were down in formation as far as all of our vehicles, every kit on, ready to go. I'm not exaggerating, probably within 15, 20 minutes. And you guys like, were bringing, what, a company-sized element? or No, it's a platoon. Just a platoon? Yeah, just a platoon. So initially, what we thought was going to happen is we were going to hop on helos, and we're going to get infilled in, basically secure the crash site, and start 
And nobody had told you that the crash light was like basically at the top of a fucking mountain. Uh, well, <laughs> we, we, you know, we were aware of the Conar Valley. Like, the, yep. I mean, those mountains are Google it. I mean, it's probably one of the most austere environments in all of that region of the world. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable and, and long history of fighting and, and just very non-permissive um, um, region. But yeah, we thought like, cool, we're going to do the cool guy thing. We're going to hop on a, a bunch of 47s, a bunch of Chinooks, and we're going to rope in and we're going to land and we're going to do all these things and we're going to get there and we're going to secure it and we're going to save these guys. Hopefully they're still alive. We're going to save these guys. The birds had to come from another base and from where we were, were to that base, there was weather. And so it's very mountainous, very high and everything. So there's only certain places that they can fly and also, you know, the danger of them flying from place to place. So basically, long story short, there was no air. So contingency number one, gone. This is moved to contingency number two, which is, okay, well, now we have to kind of work through a couple things. We have to know where are we going to go. So we start looking at ground infill routes um, because we knew where the X was. Well, there's the X. <laughs> Look at the terrain. Look at the relief. How are we going to make that happen? And also, um, obviously, bad things happen, so we have to look at all of – Long story, the danger between where we can start and how we're going to end up there so we don't become another liability. So the planning starts to happen. We get all the vehicles and everything ready, um, and we're waiting for the powers that be, like all the head shed, you know, because at this time, it is way above just my platoon. I mean, it's being planned on a massive level. Eventually, we put together the plan, so we have to drive, uh, I think it was like four or five hours north, uh, through the night, and we get to this uh, video of vehicle drop-off area, and we begin walking, essentially. <laughs> and it was, um, I was a, a machine gunner at the time, so granted I was carrying a, a lighter machine gun, so it weighs almost 10 pounds lighter than the normal machine gun that I was carrying, um, but basically it was, we had a little bit of chow, a little bit of water, and a lot of bullets. We did slick down as much as possible. Y'all went for a fight. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, the fight was on. The fight was on. Yep. You know? So I do remember, though, I'll back up just a bit before the drive. The, I'll just say the angst and almost the anger amongst at least my peer group. So, you know, E4, E5, some of even the E6s, although they were, they were kind of quelling it pretty well of, what the fuck are we doing still standing here? There are people fighting right now. There's a tick going on. Are we really seriously talking about who's going to take lead, all, all these other things, right? And some of that is like that teenage angst, right, when you're, when you're at that level. And it, it did get kind of squashed or at least cooled down just a little bit like, hey, man, like we can't become another liability. So fast forward, we get to the VDO. Um, an officer who was mildly somewhat in charge or at least had a say-so – um, dictated our uniform. So we're starting out a thousand feet. We know we're going to end up at between nine, five and 10, five, maybe even 11. I don't know what, what the exact MSL was. Well, it's pretty hot where we are, but if anybody knows has been in the mountains, even if it's in June and July in Afghanistan, it gets pretty damn cold when you're at 10,000 feet. I have never been colder in my life <laughs> than the mountains. Me, me too. Me too. That's where a lot of my frostbite and everything comes from. So, a request, I will say, was made that, hey, can we just wear either T-shirts or can we just put our DCU top on, like our, our camouflage blouse, but have, 
you know, this extra thing or whatever. So like we're not in completely soaking wet clothes when we're trying to, to pull security overnight and doing all the other things. Essentially the answer was no. Fast forward, we're running out of water. I mean, it is a slog. I mean, you're carrying all this heavy equipment. You're, the air is getting thinner, blah, 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 blah. Do you guys roll with mortars too? There was a 60 handheld yeah. team, I think. Yeah. Hells yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we get to basically probably the crux of the movement, um, which is cliff bands, to move around this cliff band to actually get to the crash site. And time is of the essence of it. We don't even know exactly what's going on. I mean, your, your mind is, is just racing. The, the head shed might have had a better, better idea. We probably had some platforms on, overhead that were kind of looking at things, but we had no idea what was going on, at least at my level. So that night, um, we, I, can't speak for everyone else, essentially got down to my silky shorts that I had on. I had my boots on. I had silky shorts. I had no BDU bottoms or DCU bottoms, and I had no DCU top. Sleeping on a rock, pulling security, sleeping on a rock, and you know, going back and forth between secure, pulling security and getting rest, with my assistant gunner and my AG. Sometimes I was big spoon, sometimes I was little spoon, but we were essentially naked, pulling security because we were warmer, with no clothes on, no wet clothes on, than we were with wet clothes on. It's probably, I think, it was about forty degrees. This is a lot of ladies' <laughs> dreams right here. Wind. <laughs> there we were you, naked enough. Yeah, if you saw the other guys, you'd, you'd know it's kind of our dreams too. You forgot the woobie, right? <laughs> I, actually, I think uh, Remy. Uh, I think there was. It was one of those things where it's like sleeping bags, right? Like only one sleeping bag yep. for three people. I think we had like you one know, whoopee. one woobie that was you know getting passed around or whatever. Because I do remember. I think we did. We're able to finally pull a Wilby over us. I think it got past her. How many Black Hawk down jokes were made as you oh, guys dude. were prepping yeah. for the mission? Yeah. Like I love it every time we do something dumb and guys are like, "Oh man, you'd be better off just packing beer right. and dope." Yeah. And you're like, "You're making this joke right now, motherfucker." Yeah. But look, it's gonna happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> History tends to repeat itself. You know, shit hook, shit hook down. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's forty degrees ish um, at you know ten thousand feet ish. And wind for sure was blowing fifteen twenty, on a rock behind a machine gun. It was not fun. I mean, I say I slept, probably didn't. And actually, for the most part, that whole week, it's just it's really those micro sleeps because it just went from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. But we're black on water, so we have no water. We're pretty much black on food, so we're pretty much out of everything except bullets and people. Uh, there was some altitude sickness that was going on because we were. I mean, we don't get the picture in your head that we were running up this hill, but it was. It was that same compulsion of, why the fuck aren't we up there? Why aren't we doing this as bullshit? Get, get us on birds, whatever. It was that same compulsion of, we can't slow down. Like, there are potentially people that are just dying their last breath or whatever's going on. It's like, please, can somebody come help me? So there was that compulsion. So people were getting altitude. We were moving up that hill pretty damn quick. I mean, that's a lot of altitude gain. Yeah, and You guys are is. basically flatlanders. Yeah. Exactly. Where in JBAD, you're not that high. No, it's not that bad. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's still, but it's still like it's like organ E and skin and stuff like that. It's like base elevation, like seven grand or whatever. So you, you know, yeah. may get a headache for a couple first couple of weeks of your tour, but you know, when you we were in RC East, our base was at like seven grand, right. and it was like it, altitude didn't wasn't that bothersome. Yeah. yeah, when you go up from there after we there for a couple of weeks, you're climatized. It's not that big of a deal. So, um, so we make it through the night. But what was happening in the middle of the night is um, so they build these things called speed balls essentially, which is, and they could be comprised of a bunch of different items, but back in the rear, um, forward rear, um, you build a speed ball. So it might have 
all food and water. It could have batteries, whatever. So it's a it's a it's a a package that can be dropped in various various forms into a zone. Um, so you can essentially conduct a very fast resupply. Well, you had, I mean, we had other elements with us. So you had all these people that, I mean, we were black on almost everything. The problem is, is that if you look on a topo map of that region, there are very few flat places. Yeah. Where can you, where can you push a bundle out of an airplane? So I think there might even be a couple of pictures here and there of us picking up. So when they dropped and a friend of mine, I won't name him, just finished Pathfinder school. Completely nailed the drop for the most part. For the most part. <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> but the thorn in his side, which pretty much got blamed on his lack of Pathfinder ability, was the fact that these bundles were being pushed out of a 60 on, I mean. Helicopter. Out, yeah, out of, a, out of a Black Hawk helicopter. And just, I don't know, man. Like, just, just think of some really super steep mountain, rocky, craggy. Well, one, it's probably not just going to, like, drop and just, like, sit there. And two, as it tumbles down, it's all these rocks and everything. The shale is just going to rip it apart, and it's going to open up. And guess what? Yard sale. (laughs) So we were picking up and salvaging whatever MREs and water and IV. I mean, there's a couple pictures I have, like, us all hooked up on IVs, and IVs are hanging from bags and all this other stuff. Those are really, like, those are famous pictures, by the way. Like, that is is, is a... Very, I think it's made its memorable rounds, yeah. moment in Ranger history. Right, like you you were part of something very much bigger than yourself there. Right, and that's and that's kind of probably where all this is going is not only some of the the oversight mistakes that were maybe made that led up to it, but also in when everything goes south, things. I mean, we were tired, we were hung, we were exhausted, all of these things. But if you can't reach down, if you're if you're gonna sit there and continue to feel sorry for yourself, like oh dude, I, I just can't make it. Oh, I'm sure there were dudes in your platoon that were like that though, right? I was like that. So, we were always feeling sorry for yeah. ourselves. So there are. It, I I think it's okay to have that momentary. So this is one of the things I like to, I like to say. When things go south, you're allowed one expletive. You're allowed to feel 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 sorry for yourself for a very short period of time. You know. So my one expletive is like something happening. Like oh. Fuck. Yep. Now, get over it. What led up to that? What can you implement? What? How can you make this situation better? Because if you're just going to sit here and ruminate over it and be like, oh, well, but this happened and that, that's doing you no good. And you mentioned earlier, Doug, the emotional response. I've, I'm, I'm sure we could go round and round about it, but what good ever come, whatever good, good ever came from having an emotional response to an adverse effect? Brian reminds me of that regularly because so, I'm a very emotional person. Yeah. So if Thanks, and, and, and it's okay. It's one of the <laughs> things that makes us humans. It's one of the things that makes us probably one of the most unique things in all of the universe. But if you are going to allow yourself to continue to react emotionally to something, then you're you're not going to have probably the outcome that you want, and you're probably going to continue to have a negative outcome from there on out, whether it's in that particular instance or, or forward. So you have to look at things objectively. You have to look at things logically and, and with reason and, you know, use the fifth and most important principle of patrolling, which is common sense. You know, common sense will typically prevail over probably all the, you know, the other factors of planning, execution, all this other stuff. So, yeah, I felt sorry for myself. And I've got pictures of guys. There's, there's a picture of me. My, my hair is all wild. I look like people say I look like um, 
one of the uh, Mortal Kombat guys with the big, huge yeah, hair. Yeah, them hairs is out of regulation. Yeah, yeah especially. exactly. <laughs> and there's a guy behind me. Um, I, I, I won't say his name, but there's a guy behind me, and he's looking up, and he's just got, like, this grimace on his face. Like, ugh. Did you guys all look miserable? It was oh, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was miserable. And that's cool. Like, you know, people say embrace the suck or whatever. Like, that shit's bullshit. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> like, like, and you can, you can, you probably in the middle of it, you can be like, oh, this sucks. It's never going to end and all that stuff. And you can be like, yeah, but if you stop and think, like, but we're together. Right. Yeah. Yay. But the look on his face, it, it says it all. And there's another picture I have uh, my buddy, the guy Remy, and I'm just looking at him like, he's like, dude, I'm going to get a picture of you. And I'm just looking over him like, just take the Dead. fucking picture. Yep. Yeah. Like, come on, bro. So, getting back to it. At the time, the dudes that are like that are the most annoying person in your unit. Oh, yeah, dude. But when you get done with a trip and you're like, man, we have these fucking pictures of this. This guy this guy was right. I'm glad he was around and right. I hated him then, but now I do not hate him at all. And I think that's part of it, too, is if you can have those moments, even those moments of when you're in the middle of everything going wrong or just it just is uncomfortable, to know – Keep your eye on the – keep focusing – keep looking between the trees. Keep focused on what you're doing. Don't allow your emotions like, oh, I'm feeling so sorry for all those things to get to you. And just realize you continue on this path. You will make it, you will make it through it, and then you'll be clinging beers and everything, and you will appreciate these times. Well, I think that you also learned the value of not cutting corners. Like, uh, yeah. Like I've long said that like what sets a guy up in special forces for success is the attitudes of his first senior – that like if a guy goes and has a shitty first senior man, like what he learns about his job in special forces is like is pretty fucking low bar. I had my first senior, like I showed up fast and loose. My first senior was this like by the books, anal retentive motherfucker. Like, I mean, to this day, like we when we fight, we fight like family. Like <laughs> it is it is brutal, man. Yeah. But this dude hammered me day in and day out. He was brutal. We became best friends. But I took away from that like a lot about hey man like I do I I'm always gonna do more than I should like it sucks like I assume a lot more responsibility I shouldn't do those things they're bad for me as a person but as far as like doing my job they're fucking better right so like I spent a lot of time trying to get away from that <laughs> but you coming out of Ranger like coming out of Ranger training and going straight to Afghanistan and then falling into a failure of planning I mean you guys plan you were QRF right you mm -hmm. did the right thing. Right. But you also, you you looked at the most dangerous course of action in the, from the wrong angle. Right. Like you guys didn't have sustainment. You, you put in contingencies. All the right things were done. But in the end, none of those things mattered. You were left flapping, right? right. All of those lessons have stuck with you further on. Like uh, Brian was talking about wanting to do a video with you, like you planning, like talking with you about like how you plan for these things. Right. And I'm laughing because I can just picture like I was watching you pack your bag in Tahoe <laughs> and you, it's like a blow. I've heard about this. People, everybody started talking about like, dude, you see the way that dude packs his car in his bag? Yeah, like, everything. Like you're like literally like you're touching everything. Everything comes out and then right. you're like inventorying everything in your head as it goes back in to make sure it's still <laughs> Hold there. Hold it up, yep. pack it. Yep, there it is. Yep. And I'm laughing. So I'm like, man, those are the layouts we hated when we were you know, coming through this, but I never forgot anything when I went through those right. and conducting those kind of layouts as, you know, pre-combat checks, pre-combat inspections, like ensures that you're not, you know, crashing into the side of a mountain. Right. Well, in the military, for sure, there, I observed two different kinds of people. There was people that were on their 50th gunfight. They were like, Hey man, 
I've done 50 gunfights, and you know what? My kid hasn't changed. My gun is fired every time. I'm good. The way I've been doing things are good. And then there's the other guy that's like Zach that's like, pull the things out of my kit, check to see if the bullets are there, right. check to see if the batteries are in my strobe, check to see if the batteries are topped off in my nods, check to see this. And they go through everything just as they were trained to do. And for some reason with a lot of people in the military, the prepar- the preparatory steps towards an objective are the things that are first to disposed get. of. It's like, dude, I am the best room clearer in the whole world. I'm the fastest guy, blah, 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 because they, they concentrate on the sexy stuff. But the unsexy stuff that tends to be the most important is the first thing that is. So absolutely. So I'll speak. So at the tail end of my career in the regiment, I voluntarily withdrew. I, I went into my sergeant major. I said, hey, sergeant major, I don't volunteer anymore. And it's, it's the ranger regiment's a volunteer. We call them three-time volunteers. So you volunteer for the military, you volunteer for jump status, and you volunteer for a ranger regiment. So it's a volunteer unit. I had some other goals. So the end, in, the end of my military career was in sight. I had some other goals. <laughs> I can't, right, wrong, or different, leaving regiment to go to the regular army, even though I was with, in a reconnaissance element, I was actually my first sergeant, uh, the, the, my first line supervisor was a guy I worked with in a regiment who also voluntarily withdrew to move on to, to complete some goals. But it wasn't even the ability of the individuals in my platoon it was the mindset of the individuals above me. So my first sergeant and I were like, hey, we can we can essentially, um, you guys can look it up, but um, it is originally rangers were designed to, you were to go to this unit, you were to learn all these tactics and everything, and you, then you were to go out and spread that knowledge and those tactics and those abilities to the rest of the army, to enrich the army. Essentially, that's what the ranger regiment was. So we were essentially living Abrams Charter. We were going, we, whether we were told to or whether we volunteered, we we're going to go out to the military and we say, hey, here is all of our lessons and we would like to help you do this and learn. The upper echelon leadership was very adverse, averse to that. So we were saying, hey, we can do this and this and this. And one of the biggest nay comments was, we don't have the money you have. You have to understand, we're here. We can't do those things. We were constantly- a Defeatist attitude. Right. We were constantly trying to tell them, look, I don't know what images you have of the Ranger Regiment, but the vast majority of our training is free. And it starts with discipline. So you guys are talking about like, as silly as it sounds, people are gonna be like, dude, you are major anal. I'm glad I never worked with you or live with you. But I had these guys, I didn't realize that they didn't have wall lockers. You know, the guys, I was a platoon sergeant. I was an E7 in charge of 40 other people in a reconnaissance element. What do you mean you don't have wall lockers? Where do you keep your stuff? Oh, back at our barracks. Like, yeah, but your gear's not here, and this is where we work. So when I say we're going to go do this, I have to wait for you for two hours, you know, or whatever, to go get your gear, or I have to have the mindset of like, okay, tomorrow you need to have this and this and this. Well, what if we do hip pocket, so to speak, training. Or what are we like, hey, we got some dead time, let's do this. We can't do it. So through various means, I helped procure through channels, wall lockers. And I said- You can just say theft. <laughs> That's okay. Ac- acquiring. <laughs> yeah. A uh, wise man once told me. Yeah. Now, Doug, the only one teeth in the army and everybody <laughs> else just trying to get their stuff back. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> so through various methods, I said, well, I'm going to help fix this. And that's just- that's just a wall locker. 
So I got everybody to wall lockers. But then I said, but I expect all of your stuff to be here. I expect your wall locker to look like this. And here's the reason. I told them the why as well. So I, I fixed those problems. And then they were like, well, yeah, but, okay, good good on that, whatever. That's, that's your thing. And so we're like, hey, we want to do this training. Well, we can't. Or, hey, we want to do this. Oh, we can't. Well, why? Well, we just can't. They were just so used to saying no. They, they, a lot of times they couldn't even tell me the why. So, <laughs> like it or not, I, we just made things happen. Maybe there were or weren't some approvals or whatever, but, you know, but we just made things happen. And the next thing you know, they start seeing us operate at certain levels. Like, when did you do that training or how did you do that? Like, don't worry about it. But they kept saying, you can't do that here because. You can't do that here because. And every time I came up with a solution, they were like, well, they would just, you know, vomit with the next thing. So there's, there are people who just want to say no and they don't want to take on anything, even if you're willing to show them the how and why that you can. And I think a lot of things stem from having that baseline of what you guys are talking about. Like, why are we just going to throw that out the window? That's how every, that's what every, the foundation that everything is built upon. If we have that discipline, I'm not going to go clink because I checked my max before I went out. Um, we were able to overcome this by doing this. We were Pre- able to- press checks are free, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's a mindset thing. And I am a hundred percent sympathetic to you because a lot of my like operational time in SF has been working with partner forces or alternately working with a partner force that is an American partner force that is like a reservist or, you know, another guard force, like working with somebody who's not a professional soldier. Um, I say that it's probably harsh, but also it's true. Like, right. Like I'm working with people whose mindset is not their conventional military, whose mindset is not um, mitigating or, or, or prepping themselves for an actual life or death struggle. Thanks so, Leonidas. Yeah. How many among you <laughs> soldiers? Super douchey, right? Also really true, man, because you're right. The obstructionist attitude that exists in the military is one that like, they see you as a different, like you're in soft. Everything's different for you. Well, you're right. But, but it's, it's all the same. It's different because I choose for it to be different. I I go to work every day and I'm surrounded by people that don't say, you can't do that here because they say, how do we do this thing we really want to do, period. Like, it, it doesn't matter. Well, command said we can't do that. Well, that doesn't matter. I'd fuck them. They're idiots. They don't know. It's, they're not in this team. They don't know what's best for us. Like, okay, how do we rewrite the training concept so that the command doesn't think it's the same thing we pitched before. They said, no right, to. Yeah, yeah. how do we, Isn't how do we convince thing? them? It's a completely different thing, right? Like we're still going to get this training in. Uh, we don't have any money. You're on partial per diem. You know, like there's all of these obstructions. It's like, cool, man, guys want to get good training in. If we tell guys that they're going to go to the mountains and they're going to climb for a week and they're only going to get $20 a day to eat. Well, we'll bring in right. You know what I mean? Like, and we'll take, you know, we'll take a mil- we'll take military vehicles. Like uh, the risk assessment wasn't, yeah, approved. Okay, we'll rewrite it. Right. Write a different risk assessment. Change the risk factor. Yeah. Add um, some controls, whatever. Exactly. Like, guys, it, and it's funny telling people that and them being like, well, it's all about you know, your attitude's different. You're a different person. Like, yeah, man, you can be like this. I was not, I didn't come into the military and like stumble into some place, some Xanadu where everybody was like, wow, that wild card Doug, 
he's got some good ideas. Still doesn't happen. <laughs> the people are like, that Doug is an idiot. We should not do anything he says. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> Sounds and, familiar. Yeah. And to your point, so like you had this lieutenant colonel and the sergeant major that was saying, well, you can't do that here or, you know, it's, it's different here. So I will concede this. Everybody is different. Yeah. Um, we all have different thresholds, all these other things. However, even if your peak level is just going to be like at a seven, but right now you're at a three. So if you were to imagine like this person, you know, you're, you're this omnipotent being, you'd be like, that person will never be above a seven. But right now you're at three. It's, it's of my mind and my thought process that if you can just do a few of these processes and trust them and, and just stick with them, whatever it's, it's like, hey, I want to deadlift, whatever, right? But I'm on the couch right now. It takes discipline. It takes, whether it's discipline to say like, well, every day I have to get up at a certain time and I have to do this. It takes whatever, whatever it is. A commitment. A com- okay. Yeah. But you use these very but very easy processes. A program. A program, Yeah. right? Yeah. You can get there. There is, you're only limited, and I... I but you don't, and that's the thing, right, is people think that there was some sort of weird, like, phase shift where you went from a three to a seven because of a magical course you attended. Right. But the course that you attended took you from a three to a four, and then you had to learn a bunch of things along the way, like self-learning, self-teaching. To and you get have to, to be seven. open to that learning. You have yep. to be that, re- that um, you have to look at yourself introspectively. You know, you be, I'm not good at these things. I am good at these things. Let me work on what I'm not good at. Let me dedicate time to it, right? And it is a time-consuming process. And like I told Marshall like this past weekend, enjoy it. Enjoy the process. You're, yep. you, were, it, it, you never do, you never done anything before until you did it. Enjoy. You're only going to have that one time for that activity to be a student once. Enjoy it. Don't look at like, well, but I got to do this many jumps before I can do a wingsuit and everything. I just want a wingsuit. You know what? You just want to die then, huh? Yeah. Like, <laughs> there is so much fun to be had. Like, you you look on, like, I have friends that have like, oh, I got like 80 skydives or whatever. Like, Eric Gordon, he's got approaching like 100 skydives right now or might have more. He is absolutely Loving it. Dude, he, that he's guy, loving the process. That guy definitely can live in the moment, though. Yeah. Like, I really respect that. Like, that dude, anytime I talk to him, I'm like, man, he is really enjoying he d- whatever he's doing right I now. I get phone calls like, hey, man, what's going on? Like, you going to drop something? They're like, I don't know. Because yeah, I'm I'm not saying this because I'm at a different level, a different level of ability. But I'm just at a different level where it's like, I, I just, I have other stuff going on. And I think differently. Like, oh, I don't know. Like, essentially, I've kind of lost some of what he has, which is Dude, I just want to be there. It's just that one jump. And I'm looking like, uh, I don't know. Like, doesn't look like it's me. Well, like, it like how shit. many jumps? How many jumps are in your jump log? Uh, in my, well, in my jump log. I mean, but how many jumps have you done? Uh, like 2,500. 2,500? It's, it's not that many. Because you got to remember uh, for the first three-fourths of my jumping career, um, I was gone. You know, and then I was maybe choosing other things to do. or But, you know, I was only home for six months out of the year. And half of that, I was on a one-hour leash. So I couldn't even, you know, like you can't drive 40 minutes to the drop zone, be in an airplane and be like, oh, you got a phone call and like be back in formation with all your gear in an hour. So, you know, it was limited that way. So, but it just in the past couple of years, I mean, I've logged, I don't know, like more, more jumps than I ever did probably in two or three years combined. Hmm. Even with the Black Tigers? That was standing. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, yeah, because we were doing... Yeah, like 500 jumps plus a year with the daggers. Cool. Um, but once again, it's like it's your job and you have 
you're not worried about budgeting for jump tickets. <laughs> so it's just like go jump 12 jumps a day for that was at the black days. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. As soon as I realized that they were getting free jump tickets, I was like, man, no wonder those guys clock up jumps yeah. so much. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so getting back to it, like the process is still the same. The goal setting process is still the same. Um, whether it's, I don't want to be a liability on a, a hillside at 11,000 feet, whether it's, um, you know, I want to ski this line. How do I do it? Whatever it is, you have to look at what, where you want to be. You have to look at everything that has to happen along the way. And if some of the things are factors that you have to mitigate, like how am I going to get that money? How am I going to have that time? Or if it's a danger thing that you're mitigating, how, how can I reduce this risk? How can I, how can I make it to where one, I do this safely all along the way. And if it turns out like, oh, I, I didn't die, but I injured myself a little bit, for me personally, how do I make it so that I don't now not only cause a helicopter full of people to have to come save me, but also, depending on where I'm at, how do I cause that helicopter full of people to come save me to not also crash and then become this second, third, fourth order effect of shit chain events? And it's funny because guys don't – guys are so – from both sides of the coin, guys don't see that until way later. Like you get more mature and you start to think that way, but like nobody that was nobody on the ground thinks I'm going to cause that. And nobody yeah, that's do. on a rescue mission thinks that's going to be me. Right. You know what I mean? Like everybody is like I'm immune to those things until you get older and you're like, "Man, this could happen to me." <laughs> like and I could be that guy if I'm not careful. Like the things that go into motion when that reaches terminal velocity, like your point of no return, right? Is it's like you don't always see those things coming. I mean, in the rearview mirror, you probably can. But like the beauty or the, the horror of that situation is that you're not going to be around if you make a mistake before, like at the point of no return that sets those chain of motions into, into action. Like yeah, the, the plus side is you won't be around to, right. to regret it. Uh, but guess what? Like everybody else will get to sharpshoot your unpreparedness right. and your bad decisions for years and years in the future. It's one of my values. Like, or at least I, I believe in it is mutual respect. So I don't mind being on the receiving end of like, dude, I'm there. Like I will come climb this mountain and, you know, help you out or I'll do whatever. Yeah. Right? You made a mistake, you, man. You, yeah. Let's, you hop my back, whatever. Yep. It's this dichotomy of, but I'm not willing to put that. Don't put that on me, Ricky Bobby. Like I don't want to put that on the other individuals because I know how it feels, even though they would be totally okay with it. It's like, dude, I just can't do that. Right. It comes back to surrounding yourself with good people, man. Right, there you go. And <clears throat> I think that's a key factor when you talk about personal goals as well. We don't necessarily get to choose the people we work with, um, but we do get to choose the people we hang out with. And I think that the way we can curate, you know, what we see on social media, we also have that choice to curate who are the people that we hang out with, who are the people that we surround ourselves with. Are they able to help us in a healthy way move towards our goals or are they – you know, full of negativity and holding us back. Aaron so. says this, glances at Doug, <laughs> glances at Brian. <laughs> then he puts his head in his hands. <laughs> like, I, I, I chose them. <laughs> I have long held that the failures of Softly are due to poor personnel choices. That's right. <laughs> it falls on one person. Yeah. You just start pointing the finger at yourself. Well, I think, you know, I, I don't know, man. This whole conversation, I just keep thinking about this theme of Discipline, self-confidence, and humility, and how those things are all tied together. Right. Um, but it goes back to 
all of that stuff is, are, you know, all of those things are factors that good people, you know, if you surround yourself with good people, you're going to feel those things. And if you are trying to achieve some type of goal, I mean, it goes back to what you were talking about with the, you know, skiing with like the best skiers in the world or whatever. Those people, generally speaking, are never like, I'm way fucking better than you. Like, don't fucking right, hang out right, near yeah. me, noob. Like, those guys are the are the first ones to like help a new guy out, right. show him what's going on. And I think most people, as they start to look towards achieving a new goal, um, are very self-conscious of like, I don't want to be the guy that doesn't know what he's doing or whatever. And the fact is, if you find a good crew, those people actually want you to be the guy that doesn't know what they're doing. They want to help you. They want to help pull you forward. And it's going to make things that much easier. So anyway. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. Um, I like I get hit up every now and then, like people slide into my DMs on IG, and like, "Hey, dude, I'll I look see at it. you <laughs> talking <laughs> like the hip kids. I'm on I'm on fleek. I'm a hip dad. Um, but what that mouth they, do? <laughs> they, you know, I get asked questions, and maybe it's one of the reasons why I've chosen the career path that I've chosen, and uh, you know, like from law enforcement to military, and and you know, now in a field in education, is maybe I just like to help people and like help enrich their lives, but. I am a little cautious of like people like, Hey, can you teach me how to base? I'm like, uh, I don't, that's a huge responsibility mm -hmm. because I don't just look at it for me personally. I'll just look at it as while I'm teaching you, but I look at it like, okay, well I taught you all of these things to try to help you have fun and also be safe. But I also, but I, and I don't, I don't want to have the responsibility of you going in uh, later and hearing about it and like, Oh, that was my fault. But I also, you know, the dichotomy of it is I realize, well, we all still make our own decisions. Mm -hmm. So um, I, that's, this is my path. This is my path. This is how I conduct my life. I don't, it has, it has worked very well for me. Um, I have been willing to open myself up and look inward, look retrospectively, all, you know, introspectively, all these things. And it's worked for me. I think those are good those are, those are productive ways to go through life and to achieve goals. They may not be for everyone. They work for me. If they work for other people, that is really awesome. Um, if you have another way to skin that cat, that's great for you too. But I think the only thing I would, I would stress is don't just look at what's good for you. Sounds hokey, but we're a community. So how, what happens to me could potentially have an adverse effect on you. And if we're really looking to moving forward and, you know, becoming a better society and better community and all these different things, but also progressing as individuals, then while you're looking at what's good for you, also look at so mitigating risk, look at how it's going to affect those around you. And if it's going to have an adverse effect on those around them, whether it's monetarily, health, physical, whatever it is, then maybe you need to throw in a control or maybe you need to rethink if, if that's even worth it. Yeah. Because it might be worth a few. But if it has these effects, you know, with other people who are down the road, then maybe you need to look otherwise. Cool. So whether it's planning a mission in the military, planning an outing with the family, planning this rad ski run or wingsuit proxy flight, it's, like that he likes to call it. It's the golden rule. Yeah. Sage advice, man. Yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing and seeing more about this upcoming trip. <laughs> Me too. That you guys are taking. So people out there, stay tuned for rad things from Zach Carbo and the Softly crew. Thanks again for coming in to join us, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Hey, man, anytime. We'll do it again. Until next week. <laughs>